This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And every night, we love doing... Well, I think I'm hearing water sounds. I'm not sure if I am. I don't think I am, but... <laughs> not yet. Not yet. What we like to do is segment... Blah, 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 There you go. There it is. <laughs> Last time we did it, we got a toilet. You never know what you're going to get now. And that sounded like a plunger, but it is a water sound. And it's uh, our water cooler segment. It's the stuff we like to talk about while we're just hanging around our office. <laughs> and subjects that hopefully you can talk around your water cooler with at work if you have one. And if you're just doing a construction project, well, you know, just hanging around, just uh, eating a sandwich. And, well, earlier today we were talking about, well, I actually, they caught me on a rant. Off mic, we, we thought the mics were down. Jesse always keeps them up. And we were just having a discussion about, well, of all things, milk and ice. And things just went in a strange direction. Here was us, well, before. You like your milk on the rocks, don't you? I love my milk. Milk with ice? That's that's interesting. Oh, no, no, no. It's Once you've done this, you yeah. live again. I understand. It's not milk That's like ice. beer with ice. It's just... No, no. Yeah. Hear, hear how to do this. Anyone <laughs> a rant. So, no, this isn't a rant. Up to the mic. I mean, we're it's rolling. Very serious stuff. You, you take, <laughs> you start, you put some ice in something like either a bowl and a lot of it. You fill the bowl to the lid with ice. You pour your milk into that bowl, but that's not where you're going to drink your milk. Mm-hmm. You're just preparing your milk to be drank. You keep it in the ice for about two minutes, no so longer, serious. because then it'll start right. to coagulate. It'll freeze. After two minutes, take it, get a, get something to hold the ice, mm. then pour that ice, strain milk through the ice into a glass. Mm. And if the glass is chilled but not frozen, even better. And then have a hot pancakes with that milk. Mm. <laughs> if you want, put one or two cubes on the top yeah. because it won't melt. Because now the, now the milk is properly mm. cold, so that ice will not melt. It'll take a lot longer. <laughs> yeah. And then you will have had ice, really cold, cold milk. And once you do it, I literally can't drink even cool milk anymore. <laughs> who told you to do that? Um, a restaurateur in uh, Pittsburgh who did it to all his milk. Wow. He did it to all of, his, all of his drinks. And he also had special ice. Got, and everybody said his drinks were the best. But he had this ice machine <laughs> that actually was, cost a fortune. And it cut a cubed ice. And it was like this crystal meth ice. <laughs> it left no aftertaste. It melted incredibly slow. <laughs> And ice, once it's like four hours old in the refrigerator, picks up the smells. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Twelve hours later, it's going to kill you in a really well-mixed drink. Mm -hmm. So when you're shaking that martini and you don't have great ice, that crap gets into the... So he was actually a mixologist before there was such a thing. And Coca-Cola, he was freakish about. The Coke had to be cold before it was poured under the ice. Because warm Coke Mm. on ice tastes different. And then the ice changes the kind of the Coke. And then the kind of Coke, he's one of the first people to get Mexican Coke. He was a freak about it. Because Mexican Coke is, as everybody knows, superior to American yeah. Coke. Yeah. Really? Oh, no, no comparison. They, they have, what, like 400 different recipes, and they're all catering to different regions of the, they have of region, the world. And there's one particular, the part where a, ba, a Baja's Mexican Coke is like the original Coke. Yeah. It was, it's just more expensive because it's the real, real sugar. It's not the... The stuff, the refined, it's sugar, sugar. Sugar cane. Yeah, yeah. sugar cane. From Better the cane. than McDonald's? No, McDonald's is the best ever. Okay. McDonald's <laughs> has a special recipe from Coke. Yeah. And, and some of them said, for, screw it, just give us the mass stuff in a vat. So you'll go to some McDonald's, especially ones where the Coke's given by the people behind. And then they have a special mix, and they have a, a special a, a extra amount of syrup that they put in. 
They put in more syrup. Secret Coke. Oh, no. And I literally, there are <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people who literally know the McDonald's that serve the special McDonald's soda. And it's not every McDonald's because it costs more. It's actually quite a bit more. It's like three or four cents a drink, which sounds yeah. like nothing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in the no. overall mix of all that soda, they'll go screw it. The damn customers don't know. There was one McDonald's in, in Baltimore where I stopped going when they changed it. Mm. <laughs> and I used to like drive 20 minutes. And I don't think they ever figured it out. Yeah, no, it, you know. I know, it's a little sad, isn't it? How did you find out that you just tasted the change? Oh, yeah, I tasted it. And I, I also knew. I mean, I would always be look. I look, yeah. I didn't have, oh, I could taste it. I don't need to ask. <laughs> and with your self-serve, it's not that. Because once you go to self-serve, then they just go to the traditional mixes. So it had to come from the back. And there's a couple of other restaurants that did that deal with McDonald's. Chick-fil-A did it for the longest time. And then I don't know what happened. I don't really? know if they paid. Yeah, because there just became too many people who hadn't been. Here, here's what it came from. The people who ever had an original Coke from the soda fountain, from the yeah. ice cream parlor, yeah. knew that you could say to the man with the hat, and especially if you had the seltzer really cold, you'd say, give me an extra shot of the syrup. And he would just go this, this. And I mean, you'd be flying for the whole day. And it just tasted freaking great. But, you know, each jolt of the syrup. You know, he's, you know, if it was 12 cents for the Coke, he'd say, you know, 15 right. or whatever. It's like extra hot fudge on your hot fudge at the basket. It's like an extra shot in your coffee. It's like an extra shot of whatever. Absolutely. So, <laughs> Well, there you have it. And these guys love to make fun of me, and, and I'm happy great. to have them do it. My that was fun. Oh, come on. You guys don't have a food, a food obsession. Uh, Jesse, what's your food obsession? What bugs you about a certain food? Or what are you obsessed with? It's got to be a certain way. Or you can't eat it. A peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Something. Something where anybody makes it one way, you're not going to eat it another way. I think meatballs need to be large. They, like, so small meatballs are out. Small meatballs are out. It's almost an insult. Somebody sets it <laughs> on your plate, and it's not, you know, it's got to be a big meatball. It's got to be a real meatball. And, and Greg, come on. I mean, I don't even want to go. This might take an hour. Yeah, I don't know. One, one thing that you would go out of your way 20 minutes for. Um... A oh. drive. Oh, yeah. I, when I lived in Los Angeles, I drove 45 minutes to get these um, gluten-free vegan pancakes at this hippie, <laughs> hippie restaurant. It was, it's, a, it's a grocery store and a restaurant in one from the 60s or 70s. And you go in there, and it's just really freaky. But the food, it's just a vegan restaurant. So, But it's great. I mean, I, I drove all the time, and I'd have to convince my whole family. But on my birthdays, we were always That there. was it. And I know, Alex, you don't even have to tell me, because you would get on a plane right now and go to Big Al's for one of those, you know, what are they called? What kind of steak is it? Or? Oh, the combo with the Italian beef and the sausage in the same sandwich. In the same wow. sandwich. Yeah. First time we go there, I know what it's all about. Alex wants me to take meetings in Chicago. Next thing you know, he's pulling me around the whole place to all of his favorite eats. We love to talk about everything here on Our American Stories. This is our water cooler segment. Where would you go and how far would you go to grab that food you love? There's 20 minutes. Cooler. That's fine. After a lot of coffee. Oh, where would you go in 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes for some special food? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. A lot of foolishness, a lot of stories, and more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and everything we do is there. More after this. Yeah.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And every once in a while, as often as we can, we like to review the latest Shark Tank episode, because it's one of our favorite shows on television. And by the way, on Our American Stories, we just love the entertainment world. We love music. Go on to our website, ouramericannetwork.org, and listen to our tribute to Glenn Fry. Uh, and his life's work. Also, Carol King and Aretha Franklin, Robert Plant, Irving Berlin, and we've got so much more to do on the music space. I think uh, Jesse's favorite was Greg Allman, because Jesse loves guitars. And uh, also check out Jesse's Searching for the Crossroads, because we sent him off. He, we live here in Oxford, Mississippi. Jesse's from Oregon and uh, loves the blues. And so he wanted to do a piece and he, we were troubleshooting what to do. And he had this idea of going out to the place where Robert Johnson supposedly sold his soul to the devil. And he wanted to go out and find that actual location and what a piece of reporting it is. And it's just good fun. And well, I'm not going to tell you how it ends because <laughs> why would I do that? But again, our American network.org. It ends, he dies. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Robert might, Johnson does die. He might get physical success. Was it 29 he died? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah so he is dead. Robert Johnson <laughs> is still dead. Uh, that just reminds me of Chevy Chase when he came out every week and he said, Generalissimo Franco is still dead. And every week he would come out and report that the, the dictator was still dead. Uh, but again, it's Shark Tank time. And, well, we start off with David Haggerty. And he's the man who's up next in the tank. And we love the Shark Tank because it's a bunch of people with a whole lot of money who only 20 years ago didn't have any. And now they have money. And there's a bunch of people pitching the guys who have money so that they can get their businesses well propped up, moving along, getting to the next level. And they don't just want the money, these contestants. More often than not, they want a commodity that's just as important, maybe more important than the money. And that's the knowledge that goes along with capital. And this is what's great about free enterprise in the end. It's, it's not just how we move around capital and create wealth, but it's how we move around human talent and knowledge. And so that is so often what the folks want. And it's pairing up the right partners. Mr. Wonderful always likes, for the most part, intellectual property moves. Uh, the, the, the FUBU guy, well, he just loves mostly retail and things that, well, fall in line with his expertise. Mark Cuban's all over the place. He's in so many businesses, has a broad array of talents and a, and a, and a wide plate. And I think that's true of Robert. And then periodically there are some guests that come on and, and, and help out too. This week it's Chris Saka. But now David Haggerty, he's up in front of the tanks and his company's name is Fixed. My name is David Hegarty, and I'm from San Francisco, California. My company is Fixed, and we are seeking a $700,000 investment for a 5% equity stake. Wow. So at a 5% equity stake, and the business is worth $700,000, or, or, or <laughs> for $700,000, what are they pegging the valuation of their business? Is it 14 million? 14 million. Very ding, good. Ding, 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 ding. I was sweating over here. Getting 14 nervous. million dollars. <laughs> By the way, I do this with my little girl, and I think people are doing this all over the country. My little girl can beg valuations of business. Now, the question becomes is that the proper valuation? And very often, there's a good business, there's a good idea. 
The Sharks like it, but they're really mad at the people for coming in with a ridiculous valuation. And rarely do people undervalue their company. Just like when they go to sell their houses or anything else, the seller always thinks something is worth more than often what the buyer wants to pay. So what is fixed, David? And what does it do? Fixed is the app that fights back. So how does it work? Step one, take a photograph of your parking ticket. Step two, that's it. There is no step two. It's that simple. We take that parking ticket, we run it through our proprietary algorithm to look for issues and errors that make that ticket invalid. When we find an issue, we assemble a contest letter on your behalf and send it to the city. Four weeks later, you find out that your ticket has been dealt with. Wow, where were you when I was living in New York and piling up $1,000 a year worth of parking tickets? Thanks a lot. So what's the business model and what's the success rate? So tell us the business model. Certainly. Uh, It's a free app download. You submit your ticket. If we beat your ticket, we charge a 35% success fee. What's the success rate? We win about 20 to 30% of our contests. So how many people just do it themselves? So in San Francisco, only 5% of parking tickets are contested. And those that are contested, I think the win rate is about 20%. Well, that's not bad. I mean, I guess you could just use these guys to save you the time and the and the hassle. I mean, that's an expensive day. Just the parking tick, the parking to go to fight the parking ticket is probably yeah. as much as the parking ticket in San Francisco. So, what's a typical reason a ticket would be dismissed? There's lots of different reasons. So, uh, initially, we look for errors. So, the statutory information that the officer has to write down. Frequently, they're in a rush. They don't write that information. They made a typo on the license plate. They wrote Acura when it's an Audi. We look for all these issues that make the ticket invalid. Wow, that's good. <laughs> that is guys. good. How many tickets are issued a year? And what are the sales? But how many tickets are issued per year in America? We estimate 100 million tickets written a year. So this is a major source of income for the police. Oh, huge source. What's the average penalty or ticket? In San Francisco, the average ticket is about $70. Are you operating anywhere else right now? Yeah, we are in San Francisco, Oakland, Los Angeles, and New York. All right, tell us about the business. You have a $14 million value on the business. It must be huge. What are your sales? This year alone, I think we've done $80,000 in in (laughs) net net revenue. (laughs) There's about to be some trouble on this set. So he has $80,000 a year in net revenue. And they're asking for $14 million basically, as a business valuation. Again, they want $700,000 for 5% of the business. So how much do they make on an average contested ticket? And what does it cost to acquire an actual paying customer? From an average ticket, we make about 5 to 6 bucks in revenue. So you only make 5 or $6 per success? That's a combination <laughs> of our 35% win rate when we beat the ticket, and if we have to pay the ticket for you, we charge you a 195 convenience fee. What's it costing to acquire the incremental customer? We acquire users for a blended average of about four to five bucks. That's not is that exciting. Paid marketing? I mean, are you, is that Facebook and Twitter ads? Uh, no. We have a team of people that follow the street cleaning vehicles <laughs> in the city. <laughs> Come on. And put a flyer on the cars that have a parking ticket. Ooh. It's actually smart, it's just expensive. It's really expensive. Well, Robert, Mr. Wonderful, Lori, and Chris Saka, in or out? I'm out. 
I don't think I want to invest in a business that goes to war with government revenue. I just think it's bad karma for me. I'm not. I can't wrap my hands around if it's going to really work or not. And for that reason, I'm out. Placing a bet on this business is placing a bet against Uber. So for that reason, I'm out. I, I get that logic because Uber, well, people won't drive and park anymore because they'll just take taxis around. I mean, mm-hmm. that's his logic. Mm-hmm. I don't quite get that. I think people always drive their own cars, at least for a long time, and park. I think sometimes these techies get a little ahead of themselves with how the human beings uh, You just want to do an lives. Uber plug there on national Yeah, TV. I think that yeah, was. Yeah. It was just an Uber plug. So everyone is out, everyone except Mark Cuban. What does he have to say? Look, I love the idea of kicking the government up the ass. Oh, that's right. such a <laughs> bad idea. I like it more. You, we're in the same boat. Nothing I like. So wait, this is, but this is the money that actually builds the roads, funds the libraries, builds the homeless shelters. Oh, wait, you so want to be on that the, side of the equation? This is from the person that says, you know what? No more cars, which means no more tax money from that, no more sales tax. tax. You're considering this a tax. This is the most regressive tax that is out there. I completely agree. The people who are getting parking tickets are not the people with Ferraris you can put in a garage. The people who don't have a garage, who need their car for their job. It is the most regressive time. What are you doing, Mark? Yes or no? Um, On or off? Up or down? Well, Cuban's interested, but will he bite? What I'll offer you is your $700,000 for 7%, right? And we can structure that extra 2% as advisory fees, whatever you want. I want to make sure that I have your word that we have, you know, full commitment from you and you're available when we need you to help us out. Sure. We have a deal. Done. Whoa. I I would have said no chance. No chance. But I'm telling you, Mark Cuban sees an opportunity and he probably has a different way to get the customers. And he's thinking 100 million tickets. Plus, he hates the government because they (laughs) falsely prosecuted him. And he went after him and took him all the way to court and all the way to trial and vindicated his name. So it's personal for Mark Cuban. Great segment. Great job on that, Jesse. And that's why we love Shark Tank, folks. It's a human drama. It's a great story. It's great storytelling. And we'll bring you Shark Tank every time there's a new one. And sometimes we'll bring you one of the great old ones, too. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. our american stories and we love great stories about music sports love death business american history and our favorite subject is generosity 
and the generous things Americans do for each other and do for the world. And we love that space of gratitude, too, because in the end, when you have gratitude, happiness is possible. And if we can do anything with this show, that's one of the things we want to try and do here is just give people a little bit of light in their day each day. And it's why we love bringing you our sweet charity segment with our partners, the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity, protecting philanthropic freedom, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister, their head of publications, and a guy as eclectic as the stories you'll hear in this great series. Carl has authored 11 books, including two from his on-the-ground reporting during the Iraq War. He has a storytelling cookbook and even a graphic novel published by Marvel Comics. A graphic novel from a guy who is an aide to Daniel Patrick Moynihan and served as the chief domestic policy advisor to the President of the United States. He also lives in a houseboat, which more than anything should tell you that you're in for a treat. Take it away, Carl. It's 1830. Amidst a powerful religious revival that comes to be known as the Second Great Awakening, Americans are forming new groups and associations to battle social ills. High on the target list is slavery. Philanthropists start to push hard with moral objections against enforced servitude. No one, they insist, has the right to buy and sell other human beings. It's wrong for slave owners to be able to severely punish or even kill a slave without trial. Parents should never have their children taken away from them and sold. Husbands and wives should be legally married and protected from involuntary separation. The pattern of planters making concubines of slaves is sinful and abusive. Laws prohibiting education of the enslaved must be repealed. It's immoral that slaves should be blocked from practicing organized faith. To promote arguments like these, in 1833, major philanthropists like Arthur and Lewis Tappan, plus thousands of small donors and activists, joined together to form a new society focused on abolishing human bondage. It was called the American Anti-Slavery Society. And within a year of the society's founding, apologists for slavery launched a violent backlash. As the biggest donors and organizing spark plugs behind the group, the Tappan brothers had a high profile in New York City, where they were prominent merchants. One hot summer night, a street crowd gathered at a church founded by the Tappans where abolitionist speakers were often invited to talk. After trashing the premises and driving away worshippers, the protesters began to maraud. A multi-day riot began, and the central targets were the two men bankrolling the anti-slavery charities. First, a mob descended on Lewis Tappan's house in Lower Manhattan. The family had been tipped off and fled, but the doors and windows of their home were battered in, the family possessions were dragged into the street, and then set on fire, all the while with some leading citizens passively looking on. A few blocks away, Arthur Tappan saved his own life and his large store only by barricading himself and his clerks inside, armed with an ample supply of firearms. Despite their narrow escapes, the Tappan brothers were undeterred. Lewis actually left his house unrepaired, a broken shell with his destroyed personal possessions and those of his wife and children strewn across the grounds. He hoped the wreckage would serve as, quote, a silent anti-slavery preacher to the crowds who will flock to see it, a raw demonstration of the brutality of his opponents. The Tappan brothers also fought back with words. 
they decided to flood the U.S. with anti-slavery mailings during the year to come. They founded and subsidized several important publications to popularize anti-slavery arguments. These included high-circulation newspapers, a children's magazine, a philosophical journal, and an illustrated monthly. These publications and others were churned out on new steam-powered presses and hurried across the country by the American Anti-Slavery Society. The campaign was powered by $30,000 of personal donations. The main targets of the mailings were ministers, local legislators, businessmen, and judges. The Society's Publications Committee, headed by Lewis Tappan, mailed over a million pieces in the course of 10 months, using moral suasion and help from thousands of volunteers to mobilize public opinion against enslavement. Up until then, historians note, defenders of slavery had managed to fend off charitable and voluntary and educational campaigns. So when this flood of exhortation in favor of freedom crested across the country, the enemies of abolition decided to strike back. In his 1835 message to Congress, President Andrew Jackson called for a national censorship law to shut down the charitable mailings of these, quote, incendiary writings. He encouraged his postmaster general to suppress the deliveries of abolitionist arguments, or at least look the other way while local postmasters did. In numerous places, that's exactly what happened. Abolitionist literature was pulled out of the mail and burned. The names and home addresses of subscribers were exposed and threats were floated. Arthur and Lewis Tappan and other philanthropists paying for the effort were subject to additional violence. Lewis was mailed a slave's ear, a hangman's rope, and many written threats. An offer of $50,000 was made for delivery of his head to New Orleans. A Virginia grand jury indicted him and other members of the American Anti-Slavery Society, and as his only defense, Lewis carried a copy of the New Testament in his breast pocket. These thuggish reactions helped turn public opinion against slavery, especially among northern churchgoers. The rioters who were hoping to suppress the American Anti-Slavery Society and intimidate its charitable backers instead had the opposite effect. Chapters of the AAS began to spread like wildfire. Just five years after it was founded, there were 1,400 chapters of the American Anti-Slavery Society across the country, mobilizing an estimated 250,000 members. That means 2% of our entire population had joined the new group in an era of primitive communications. In comparative terms, that made it bigger than today's Boy Scouts or National Rifle Association or Chamber of Commerce. For the first time, philanthropists had turned abolition into a major national crusade. The most consequential social change in the history of the United States had begun. And two brothers who combined abundant generosity with personal passion and a genius for organizing the public were at the center of it. But culture change takes a lot of heart. Then, as now... There are times when philanthropy is not for sissies. Great job on that, Carl. This is Lee Habib. Sweet charity, generosity, a fundamental part of the American story on Our American Stories. More after these messages. About the sweet love between the moon and the deep blue sea 
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. If you're looking for hot political talk, go elsewhere. The news of the day, we don't do it. Lots of sources. What we do is stories, and sometimes just really interesting things we stumble across. One of the themes we've been pursuing for quite some time is the theme and the subject of resiliency. We hit it with Stanley McChrystal and Team of Teams. We're following it in our 10-part series with Greg Hipp on his book. And joining us today is Laura Landro, who has been writing about, or at least to start, I'm not sure how long we're going to find out in a minute, but I know it's got to be something she's been thinking about, because she wrote a a piece in the health and wellness section of the Wall Street Journal called Why Learning to Be Resilient is Good for Your Health. I'm going to read just the beginning, and then I'm going to bring Laura on. The, The piece started like this. Resilience is often defined as the capacity to adjust to change, disruption, or difficulty and move on from negative or traumatic experiences in a positive way. And I'm thinking, boy, don't we all want to learn more about that. Laura, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Now, you were, first of all, what drew you to this? And have you written about resiliency before, Laura? Well, I write a column called The Informed Patient, and I'm always looking for stories about, from a sort of a medical, psychological standpoint, how people can be resilient in the face of medical challenges. But as I started to do some reading on that, I also learned that it's more than just like an immediate medical problem. You know, people are dealing with a, a giant clinical problem all the time of, of stress in their lives, stressors. And the idea is how do we cope with everything that's going on in life and all the pressures that are upon us nowadays. Um, it might not just be that you were diagnosed with cancer, but you just might have a lot of things going on and they're hitting you from all angles. And, and the question is, how do you develop the traits that allow you to cope with that and bounce back from it? You bet. And, and let, just talk about stress for a second, because I think we know now that stress can be a cause of many of the things that actually go wrong with us. And so it's not just the sim- it's more than a symptom. In some respects. Absolutely. Talk Absolutely. about that. Stress has actually been shown to be connected to all kinds of, you know, health, health issues and health problems. Let's talk about some of these programs. And I want to read again. Studies find people with the most resiliency tend to be more productive, less likely to have high health care costs, and less often absent from work. But is there a chicken and egg cure thing? As I'm reading that, I'm thinking, well, maybe the folks... 
are are healthier, and that's why they're you know that's why there are no problems. Maybe it's not the resiliency. Maybe it's just in their DNA. Um, which which prompts which? Do we know uh, from any studies, Laura? Well, I think a lot of the research that's been done, and again, you know, you're seeing more of this being done from an organizational standpoint. In other words, we have a huge workforce. They're all under stresses aside from the things that we are putting on them in the office. Maybe they have family issues or, you know, they're coping with, you know, spouse problems. They're coping with other issues besides what, you know, they're bringing things to work with them that they, that they need to deal with. And what we're trying to do for them is figure out some of them are fine. They're going to bounce back. They can juggle everything. They're multitaskers. And they're just, as you say, it might be in their DNA or in their just psychological makeup to be able to handle everything. But not everybody is. And sometimes high-functioning people can be hit by something terrible like the death of a spouse or the illness of a child. And, and that sets them way back. And it could sound a little cold, like, well, we have to figure out how to get them to act like robots and continue to work, even though terrible things are going on in their life. But I think there's more of a recognition that if you train people to sort of juggle and become more resilient, you know, you could, you could teach people the skills and habits, habits to overcome that negativity, help them stay focused and functioning even when they are under stress. Well, let's talk about what businesses are doing about this, because I found this piece Really fascinating. Obviously, businesses are worried about productivity. But if businesses are smart, they're actually worried about their human capital because so much of businesses now just have to do with the human beings that are working for them. And you better be concerned with their wellness, not just for productivity's sake, but for so many others, too. Talk about a couple of the examples you talk about in, in in your piece, Laura. Well, we briefly, you know, we spoke to, uh, the military has used these. There's a movement called Positive Psychology. You know, it focuses on, you know, kind of, getting your positive emotions a little more amped up, putting the negative emotions into perspective and learning to thrive despite challenges. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell, for example, which, as you know, is a big global organization, they started a resilience training program five years ago. They've offered it to employees in over 50 uh, countries. And, you know, they, they, they told me that, look, we didn't really roll this out or launch. It was basically offered to people as something they could choose to run in their teams if they wanted to in any kind of order. And, um, you know, this isn't something that you have to take off from work and go to a long seminar. A lot of these things are now being delivered through webinars and things like that. And or you could do it with kind of group coaching sessions. So there's not like a stigma. Hey, let's get the whole team to do this because we could all benefit from this. Right. So, you know, they, they, they basically have a, you know, somebody takes a 30 minute online training module and then they use material that shows prepared to facilitate these sort of 45 minute modules for the team. And basically it's a lot of a lot of ways to sort of, you know, customize things, use your own words and your own stories to fit local circumstances. And the, and the idea is, you know, we're using, you know, the idea of cognitive behavioral techniques. That's the idea that, you know, if you have a problem, it's something that's troubling you, we're not just going to talk about it, but we're going to give you tools to deal with it. And, um, you know, some sort of interactive exercises, things that people can use to sort of get into this positive psychology frame of mind. You bet. Now, the idea I think that McChrystal was getting at is that everybody thinks, like leadership, that resiliency is just inbred, but that it can actually be trained, I mean, up to a point. And, you know, one of the things, I'll just hit your, your piece a bit, Royal Dutch Shell has run such a program for five years in 50 plus countries and quote, it seems capable of enabling a sustained change that extends beyond improved resilience into broader human performance. Talk about that. Talk about that. Well, basically they, they showed, um, you know, they, they obviously had to, um, 
this is all self-reported levels of resilience. I'm not sure you can entirely measure it unless people just tell you how it is. Yep. But basically, you know, people had like the opportunity to do different little training modules. So they had some scoring that they did, and, and it showed significantly higher levels of employee engagement in this kind of yearly corporate survey that they did. And, you know, that they found that the average positive effect of the program continued to improve for about a year after the modules and to some extent persisted for four years after the people had done their last little training modules. So that's why they thought this was, you know, this early data indicated that people were capable of enabling a sustained change. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it goes into many, you know, you notice that more employee benefits programs are looking at these incentive wellness programs, offering programs that are, you know, designed to help people deal with all kinds of issues. And I don't know how many people take these up. Sometimes people will look at these and just kind of roll their eyes and say, oh, yeah, here's another benefit that I'm probably not going to get any benefit from. But um, I think people are finding if you can kind of take these at your own pace and maybe do it on a webinar or do it through an online course, Maybe you will learn something, or maybe it'll be fun. People like to, it's like gaming to some extent. You know, it's something you might do um, just to kind of trick your brain a little bit. Yeah, it's not like confessional going on a psychiatric sofa. And, and that's, right. that's nice, too. Tell me this. What are, what are these resilience coaching programs teaching? Give us a couple of examples, if you could, for our audience. Well, I think they're sort of going, you know, they're kind of taking it a little bit of a time. Some of the folks that we talk to, we talk to an actual large healthcare system. Um, you know, this is health partners in Minneapolis. So this is a health provider, but they also have, you know, like 22,000 or more employees. And they basically um, gave them, here's like a group module that you could do, um, online virtual coaching on topics, you know, positive thinking, stress management, healthy sleep. I think one of the programs, you know, that they, that they tried was, you know, bringing your best self to work. And, you know, they're kind of lessons in building the habits. And, and it sounds... A lot of this sounds a little, you know, touchy-feely. It might sound a little a little goofy to some people, but things like cultivating an attitude of gratitude, it sounds like a platitude. <laughs> yep. But it's the idea that, okay, I'm totally focused on all the negative things that I'm thinking and how I screwed up this transaction and now my, everything's going to be ruined from here on in. But, but just sort of saying, look, you know what, I, I can bounce back from this. You know, I'm going to write down the three things that I'm most grateful for today. I'm going to, you know, learn to be less stressed out. Like when I leave work, try to leave that behind, you know, just kind of coaching to, to learn to break that negative self-talk habit, for example. You know, that's something negative self-talk, like I'm stupid. I made a mistake. I can't bounce back from this. And to sort of get yourself away from constantly beating yourself up and, you know, replacing things with, you know, statements of fact, like, okay, like everybody makes mistakes. I'm going to figure out how to do it right the next time. Well, you quoted somebody who was a coach in the piece, and I wanted to read from that. And she's a consultant, and she was talking about one of the one of the people and one of the patients. I guess you would call them patients, even though not in the in the traditional sense as we would think it. But she was she said she learned my patient to separate home from work with rituals like removing her ID and putting her parking permit away. Quote: Life isn't going to get less stressful, she says. Coaching led her to think about how we can bend without breaking. We got thirty seconds left. Uh, tell me what folks should take away from this piece. Well, I think what you can take away from this is no matter how, you know, stressful you feel, no matter how, 
you feel that you can't change and that you can't become any more resilient. There are, in fact, studies that show that you can become more resilient, and there are programs to do it. There's some great books out there. One's actually called Resilience, The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. And, you know, that's something you can read, and there's some exercise in it. So this isn't something that necessarily needs to be offered by your your company, but these are some things you can probably seek out for yourself and maybe do a little self-coaching. You bet. And with our kids, especially as this world gets the speed at which it gets thrown at them, Resilience might be something to bake into our kids at a young age. Laura, thank you so much for joining us, and let's let's keep talking. Okay, thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And again, we cover every kind of subject here, business, life, the arts, sometimes politics begrudgingly, and of course, health, wellness, and things you care about. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you're looking for hard political talk, try another dial. And if you're looking for hot talk, uh, that's somewhere else too. Here we do stories and only stories all the time, and stories about everything. And we just did the other night uh, top 20 best selling records of all time, and not subjective, just the best sellers of all time. We ripped through it. It was a whole lot of fun. And we were all surprised at what was there and what was not. A couple of bands had two records in the top 20. Quite a number, actually. The Beatles, Pink Floyd, and the Eagles. And then Garth Brooks was, I think, the only solo artist who had two. Led Zeppelin had two as well. So it was bands uh, accounted for eight of the top 20 historic bands which is amazing and then this one guy this one country writer who by the way i'm not a big fan of garth brooks and i love country music but garth had two as well so when you get a chance ouramericannetwork.org it's up there and you can't stop listening it's back when i don't know if you remember the days when vh1 was on and they would start their top 10 this or top 50 countdowns and you'd go oh no they just wrote me in there goes my afternoon uh it's only an hour folks if you got an hour to kill you're driving you can just pop your, you know, you can just cue your and sync your phone up to your to your uh, display on your car and take a listen. And right now we want to talk about, well, a political issue that's a policy issue that can affect all of us. And when we do policy stories, it's only when it hits the pavement, when it affects you, the listener. And today our field correspondent, Alex Cordes, brings us such a story one that affects a whole lot of people in the most trying time of their lives.
that takes 15,000 victims a year, yet just 20 patients are selected for a clinical trial. I said right from the beginning, I said I'm not a statistic, I'm not a number, I'm a person. My name is Lorraine Heike McCartan. A year later, the drug shows dramatic results, but FDA approval remains years away. People die from not being able to access these drugs, and I don't want to be one of them. But she was. It was approved finally in February of 2013, and unfortunately, it was too late for two of my friends that I met along the way. After months of fighting the FDA to obtain a promising cancer drug, Michaela died two weeks ago. If I leave here tomorrow, would you still remember me? Two stories, and yet the same story. Do terminally ill patients have the right to try experimental drugs? Drugs that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, hasn't approved yet. We report, you decide. Diego Morris was a young boy, 10, 11, 12, playing soccer, very athletic. And one day he came home and he told his mom that he had terrible pain in his legs. You're listening to Darcy Olson, the president of the Goldwater Institute and the author of the book, The Right to Try. He was an avid sports enthusiast, so mom just thought maybe he had an injury or something. But over a few-week period, you know, he kept complaining about this. My name is Diego Morris, and I am 14 years old. When I was 11, I was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, a rare bone cancer that not many people get. They did tremendous research very quickly and were told by the best available doctors in the United States that the only way to save his life was going to be to send him overseas for treatments, which we're talking about almost a year-long period. My family and I had to move to a whole other country. We moved to London, England. So that he could be treated with the most cutting-edge treatment for this particular type of cancer, which has a, almost a 100% cure rate. Because we couldn't get the treatment we needed in the U.S. So this particular drug that Diego Morris and his family had to move for won Europe's gold prize in medicine because it was such a huge advance over anything that had been offered to children before who had osteosarcoma. But here we are 20 years later and we still can't get this particular treatment in the United States. Americans can't get it because the FDA won't approve it. And so families like Diego's go overseas to save their loved ones' lives. Diego's family could afford it. Most families can't. These families torment themselves, thinking, what can they do? But the FDA says there's nothing they can do. And this just isn't about Diego's particular illness, in particular life-saving drug. This year, about 40,000 women in America with breast cancer will hear from their doctor that there are no treatment options left. But what doctors really mean is that in their toolbox of approved FDA medicines, there's nothing left. But we know, for instance, that there are 22 pioneering breast cancer treatments waiting for the FDA's green light, and five of them are already available in Europe. If a drug is good enough for Europe, should it be good enough for America? One of the things that I argued for in the book was something called reciprocity, where if a medicine is available overseas in one of these nations where we are comfortable with the process that they use, unless the FDA can come up with a specific objection in 30 days' time, those things should automatically be available here. 
That was our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, reporting on whether terminally ill patients should have the right to try experimental drugs in hope of saving their own lives. We'll continue with the second part of this report after the break. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And again, stories you care about. And when it comes to public policy, only the stories you care about. More after this. with our American stories. Last segment, our field correspondent Alex Court has introduced us to the right to try debate whether terminally ill patients have the right to try experimental drugs that are not yet approved by the FDA. Drugs that have the hope of saving their life. His report left off with families being forced to move to Europe to get life-saving drugs they need, a luxury most of us can't afford. These are drugs that have been approved and safely working their magic in places like Europe and Japan for years, sometimes over a decade, and yet the FDA won't approve them. We now continue with Alex's report, where he asks, why not? So what's the FDA's argument for not approving these drugs? In her twice-monthly feature for Our American Stories that's titled Women Who Dare, World-renowned journalist and author Gail Sheehy explored this question with Jen McNary, the mother of two boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a fatal disease, but one with a life-changing investigational drug called the Teplerson. One of her sons was able to get on the drug's 12-person clinical trial and has radically healed. The other one wasn't and has radically deteriorated. And he's not alone. Without the drug, 30,000 young boys with Duchenne die, all too early, every single year. Here's Jen's take on why the FDA won't approve drugs like Eteplerson. I think the argument is that the FDA tends to think in old terms, double-blinded, large, long, controlled, placebo trials. What Jen's arguing is that the FDA requires 20th century methods that aren't needed in the 21st century such as clinical trials that are double-blinded, placebo-controlled. This means half of the patients are receiving the drug and half of them aren't, the purpose of which is to see the differing outcomes of folks on the drug and folks not on it. But in a 21st century where we know full well how those without needed treatments naturally decline, is this even necessary? Running over the same old ground What have we found? In a disease like Duchenne, we know the natural history. We know that these boys stop walking between 8 and 12 years old. We know they don't produce any dystrophin at all if they have Duchenne. So we know what to expect. These boys die. They decline and then they die. On this drug, they stabilize. 
they have a much slower decline at worst. And in some cases, like my son, Max, they recover skills and they stop collapsing and falling and hurting themselves and they don't use wheelchairs. So it is a very, very easy comparison. If you ask anybody with a child with Duchenne what they were doing at 14 years old, like my son, Max, at this point, it was not going out and getting dressed on his own, getting on a bus and going to school with no wheelchair all day. There's an immediate human cost. Everyone given the placebo pills is given a false sense of hope and then die when they need not to. And there's a long-term human cost as these large double-blinded placebo control trials that the FDA requires are often too unaffordable for small drug companies where much of the innovation comes out of. And even if they bear that cost, many can't bear the cost of the length of the FDA approval process. It takes about 15 years for a drug to get through the approval process at the FDA. Leading many to go bankrupt in the process and leading their drugs to vanish into the dustbins of history. And for the drugs that do make it through to final FDA approval, what was innovative 15 years ago might not be the most innovative possibility today. The drugs that you're putting in your body in general, for instance, if you have cancer, were developed 15 years ago. Now imagine trying to use a cell phone that was developed 15 years ago. It wouldn't even work today. And yet we're telling people who are dying that these are the only drugs that they can use. Many will never get to use any sort of life-saving treatment leading a movement of folks like Diego Morris, like Jen McNary, and like Darcy Olson to call for this. What someone with Lou Gehrig's disease will tell you is that the diagnosis is 100% fatal. They can see the end coming. There are no other treatments available. And so they would like the right to be able to try to save their lives. Uh, They know that a particular treatment may not cure them. They're the first to know that. They're the first to acknowledge it. They're the ones living with these terrible diagnoses, but they believe that they ought to have the right to try to fight for their lives. In less than two years, this movement has passed laws in 24 states that give terminally ill patients the right, along with their doctors and drug companies, to try experimental drugs that have already passed stage one safety trials, but haven't yet received FDA approval. When you see the way that these laws are passing through state legislatures, you can see that Americans agree with that, that You know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, what your views are on other things. You could be a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, You could be old or young. But there is something that we all share in common, which is there's a principle at stake here. It's your life. And for goodness sake, you ought to have the right to try to be able to fight for it. From the support of Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. Patients should be able to try a treatment, even though it hasn't been approved. It's an attempt to save their life. To the support of Republican North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory. My own family's had to deal with circumstances where they've tried everything, and I think we ought to give people that decision-making capability on their own. On why these right-to-try laws have so swiftly passed across America, Darcy Olson compared the stakes to the Titanic sinking and what we would do if we were there. If you were on a sinking ship and the only lifeboat that was available hadn't been government certified, um, wouldn't you just say, let's get the lifeboats in the water and we'll work on certifying them later? Um, People's lives are on the line. And while these drugs certainly need more testing, I think everybody agrees with that. What we're arguing is, let's get the lifeboats in the water now. People are dying now. And if it's their last best chance, let's give them the right to fight for their lives. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez.
Great job on that, Alex, and great work, Greg. And these are the kind of stories we love bringing you, and the work that the Goldwater Institute is doing and Darcy Olson is doing is terrific. Her book, The Right to Try, How the Federal Government Prevents Americans from Getting the Life-Saving Treatments They Need, is a must-read. And there was a little interesting story here I wanted to hit you with because it's interesting how the Goldwater Institute came upon this. And it was from oncologist at the Cancer Treatment Center for America. And how that institution came into being is fascinating by itself and quite a story. And then CEO Steve Bonner told the Goldwater Institute this story. He said, We were founded and are still owned by a guy named Richard Stevenson. He's an Indiana-born and bred kid who then came to Northwestern, got a law degree, and started a merchant bank and had no real interest in health care. But then something happened that would change the course of Stevenson's life and the course of cancer treatment for tens of thousands of Americans. His mom, Mary Brown Stevenson, came down with a very serious form of bladder cancer. She tried all the known and unapproved therapies at the time, but none of them worked. So Stevenson began searching for alternative treatments. He was drawn to try to be helpful as a son, and he looked all over the world for therapies that might be helpful to his mom. Bonner said, He found a number of promising things around the world and brought them back to her bedside and was blocked there by the FDA and the AMA and by the insurance companies. And she died never having had a chance to avail herself of innovative therapies. Richard Stevenson's mother was denied the right to try to save her own life. The therapies, Bonner says, may may not have helped her, but why shouldn't she have had an opportunity to try some of these things? The experience inspired Stevenson to found Cancer Treatment Centers for America. He wanted to create an organization that was focused truly on the patient and that everything would flow from that, Bonner explained. Now, decades later, cancer patients still face the same dilemma that Mary Brown Stevenson faced. They're being denied access to innovative treatments that could potentially save their lives. It turns out... There are currently more than 20,000 FDA trials for cancer medicines and treatments in Phase 2 and Phase 3, which means they have all passed basic safety tests and many had shown efficacy in patients. But unless the drugs are already approved for another indication, it is unlawful for oncologists to use those medicines and treatments outside of those carefully controlled clinical trials because they are not yet fully FDA approved. Today... About 40% of cancer patients attempt to enroll in clinical trials, but only 3% end up participating. That's just tragic. Worse still, the FDA takes as long as 15 years to bring a new medicine to market. Americans are now waiting 60% longer for the FDA to approve life-saving medical devices, such as stents and valves, than we did only 10 years ago. So, what a story, folks. Innovations keep going and growing faster, and the FDA just keeps going slower. 20th century bureaucracies, 21st century innovations, and it all means something to the dying members of your family. Right to try here, folks. Look into it in your state. And the book is Right to Try by Darcy Olson. Thanks, the Goldwater Institute. Thanks, Alex, and thanks, Greg. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
Leslie Habib with Our American Stories, where we share classic American stories about just about every walk of life, from sports to art to history to music and to public policy. And today, well, we love talking about I think the only thing we talk about when we're not talking about the show is food. And so we figured, why not make that part of the show? It's our favorite part of life. And for many Americans, eating is just a joy. And it's a social activity. And it's an art. And it's so much more. And so, well, that's what we're doing now. And we want to try and bring any number of features about food. And, well, one of the stories we wanted to hone in on is the story of Arnie Morton, the founder of Morton's, and that's the Steakhouse. And this is our first in our Food Life series. And we'll be taking a deeper look at 25 of the greatest food innovators and their life's work. And later, 25 of the greatest food innovations. So over the next year, um, that's what we're going to be digging into. Food innovators, food innovations. And so we're fortunate to have Peter Yaffe, who is an industry pro for 37 years and who heads up Food Life Brands. And he brought us this story about a man he once worked for, the, the, the legendary Arnie Morton. Take it away, Peter. When I started working for Arnie fresh out of school, he dropped me right into the deep end of the pool. Ah! He walked me into a room of managers going through each line of a profit and loss statement. And while those seasoned staff probably wondered who in the world this young kid was, Arnie cared enough about who I was. He cared enough to teach me the difference between running a restaurant and running a bankruptcy-in-waiting that happened to serve food. This difference led him to want to know the comings and goings of literally every single one of his steaks. If the night started with 100 New York strips and the cash register showed they sold 70, Arnie wanted to be sure there were 30 left in the cooler. So many people today think running a great restaurant is all about having hip food, but Arnie knew what all the great ones do. you got to have business discipline. In a steakhouse, which had six locations at the time, each serving some 200 people a night, Arnie wanted to give his diners a great time while still making good money. To achieve both, he put his restaurants in out-of-the-way basements. Now, other restaurateurs might balk at the lack of street visibility, but Arnie knew better because he learned better. In his earlier days, he ran exclusive members-only key clubs and saw how happy customers became fans. Infectious fans who wanted to convert their friends into fans, creating overflow crowds much more than any fancy location or branding could. Seeing this, Arnie never hesitated to pay rock-bottom rent to have more money to make more customers have a great time. Even if these great times were in a tucked-away basement, heck, it almost made it more fun. It was different. This combination of business sense, creativity, and most importantly, hospitality, is what made Arnie Morton a legend. A link in a long family chain of extraordinary restaurateurs. Here's Arnie's daughter, Amy Morton, who worked with Arnie for years, and is today the owner-operator of the Found Kitchen and Social House near Chicago. He is third generation, and I would be fourth generation restaurateur if we consider the fact that his great-grandfather was known as the pharmacist, a.k.a. bootlegger, 
in their neighborhood. And then my dad's dad, Morton C. Morton, had a fantastic restaurant down um, several of them, actually. The one When they moved from one, one burned down, um, one my dad was even partners in when he got older, which were the original Morton's restaurants um, down the South Siders all knew them. And still people today are always, always bringing them up. Even with restaurants running through Arnie's blood, success was never guaranteed for him. When he opened the first Morton Steakhouse on State Street, Chicago, he really wanted to show folks something new, something great. But the weather was not in a cooperative mood. Something not so great when you're talking about a city like Chicago. For days on end, days that felt like years, few people came into the restaurant that Arnie and his team had poured so much into because the snow poured even greater. A snowstorm so great that even Chicagoans stayed barricaded in their homes. One of the opening assistant managers, now the general manager of the original Chicago Mortons, Rocky Mayra, vividly remembers these early days. Once they opened Mortons on uh, December 21st, 1978, the place was kind of slow. So once they started getting busy, there was the second week of February, as Frank Sinatra came in the restaurant, that was a Friday night. And it was all over the newspaper that Frank Sinatra went to a new restaurant called Morton's. And our phone started ringing. It was a newspaper. It was a radio station and TV station. That's when it happened. You know, since then, we are busy every night. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. Okay, we've seen this before countless times. A celebrity pops into a new restaurant and gets a spike in business. But Morton's nurtured that fleeting attention into becoming a Chicago mainstay. On why it did, Chicago dining legend Richard Melman of Lettuce Entertainment Restaurants once said, Arnie was in his glory. It was fun to go there because Arnie ran the place. Arnie's daughter Amy and longtime manager Rocky remember this same energy and commitment to his customers. My dad would light up when the restaurant opened and he would be on the door. And he was an old school operator. He seated every guest. And I worked for him and with him for years up at his place in Highland Park, Arnie's North. And whether it was downtown or in Highland Park, wherever we were working together, he'd say, Aim, time to unlock the doors. And then he'd say, It's Showtime. In those days, there were only, I think, two other steakhouses. Well, Gene and George Eddie's and Eli's Steakhouse. And Arnie has a great concept. You know, and I don't know if you remember or not. We used to have a, the whole menu in a cart. We used to roll the cart to a table and show them. And there was nice show and tell. And people used to like that. So a lot of restaurants copied that concept. But Arnie was the first one to start that one. He wanted to give them the best product at the best price and give them a big quantity. That's why, you know, because we look at our menu, our steaks are from 16 ounces to 24 ounces steaks and our baked potatoes are pound to pound and a half, give a huge salad. So that was the honest concept over there because give them the value. Arnie knew how to work a room like no one else, but his charm went well beyond face to face. People in marketing today talk about brands going viral so much that it's cliched. But Arnie's marketing genius created that sort of buzz back in the days birds were the only things that tweeted. He came up with a way to put his restaurants on the map by leaving them off of any map. 
when he opened Morton's here in Chicago. Uh, and in all of the first uh, dozen Morton's, they were all located in basements. So the original Morton's that was here at 1050 North State Street was in a basement, no signage. They didn't even list the phone number with 411. And in those days, that's how you got phone numbers, 411. You had to be in the know. That's the only way you could find out that the restaurant was there. And so people felt so important and so chic. The Morton Steakhouse empire kept growing after that, today numbering some 70 restaurants all over the world. If you've ever dined in a Morton's and thought a lot of the staff seemed familiar, that's probably because they are. Our chef is there for 36 years. I have three bus boys, one is for 36, one 35, and one for 33 years. I have a lot of wait staffs at 20 years plus. This is wonderfully bizarre in an industry known for workers who come and go, but certainly no accident at Morton's. There's two reasons I think people stay places. One, because they feel good, they feel people care about them. And two, if you make money. So I think everybody really made a lot of money um, at Morton's. And I think it was really, really a family. This is Lee Habib. When we come back, more of this extraordinary life. Arnie Morton, our Food Life series with Peter Yaffe. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're spending some time talking about Arnie Morton, and this is the beginning of our Foods Life series with Peter Yaffe, and Peter knows a lot about the business, and by the way, we love people with the practical experience. I don't even ask people where they went to college. Who cares? When Peter graduated from the College of Life, running restaurants all over this country, some of the great ones in Washington, D.C., and elsewhere and that's why peter's doing the series he knows this business and he knows the people and that's what we care about real life experience and what a story so far about arnie morton none of this stuff they would have taught anybody in business school don't list your number go in a basement so you can't be found yeah they're teaching that at harvard business school right as we speak and so where we pick this up is where we left it off this man's building an empire in chicago and what happens next let's go back to Peter Yaffe's report. Even though Morton's has changed ownership and Arnie himself passed away in 2005, his hospitality and marketing savvy is still very much in the DNA. This is a tweet from a guy about to board a plane from Tampa to Newark. Hey, Morton's, can you meet me at Newark Airport with a porterhouse when I land in two hours, okay? Thanks. Smiley face. Peter Shankman was joking, but check it out. When he got off the plane, there was a guy in a tux with a steak and all the fixings. Somehow, Morton's Steakhouse figured out his flight information, drove more than 23 miles, and delivered his wish, and that's what was left over after the meal. Wow. This guy is a social media giant. This was a brilliant PR move by Morton's Steakhouse. It's all over the internet. We take for granted the classic American Steakhouse. It's now woven into our lives, but it's only that way because American originals like Arnie Morton made it that way. They led the way, and they led us there with their top-quality beef, giant portions, disciplined management, and refined service. 
In fact, when diners today visit Amy Morton's restaurant, they still pull her aside to reminisce about fond memories in her family's restaurants. Stories about my dad and, and my grandfather are really mostly people coming and and thanking me, reminding me how special these restaurants have been to them and their families, and that the Sunday night dinners, the very special occasions, the 25-year anniversaries, so many people's lives were touched by, by my dad. Artie's legacy as an innovator extends well beyond his restaurants. One of my strongest memories of working with Arnie involves a now legendary event Arnie created. You may be even one of the millions who visited it. Now the world's largest food festival, the Taste of Chicago. Hosted every summer since 1980, when Arnie Morton breathed it into life with purpose of enriching life itself. Which may sound bold, but if you've had Chicago food, you know exactly what I mean. Well, this particular summer day, I was working lunch rush when Arnie himself rushed in and told me to get my butt out to the taste yesterday. I thought about telling him there was nothing I could do about yesterday, but that well wouldn't have helped a bit with the crisis he was facing today. One young assistant manager had accidentally put all the money taken for the day into a trash bag and then proceeded to lose the trash bag and so began a frantic search for a full bag of cash. We found it, and I found a new job flipping tenderloins in the summer heat until the steaks and I were both medium rare, warm red center. That little burst of unexpected excitement aside, you can imagine how much master level cat herding it took to get a bunch of competing restaurants, musicians, and Chicago politicians to get into the same room, much less agree to run a joint festival. But Arnie was the man, not just with the plan, but with the ability to execute. There'll be plenty to eat at this year's Taste of Chicago, but there's a feast of music each day, too. Tonight at 5.30 on the main stage, it's L.A. rocker Weezer. Thanks to Arnie, our own field correspondent, Alex Cortez, has some memories he'll never forget. One time I got to see Midnight Oil with my dad. It was a beautiful Fourth of July afternoon, and it was just the two of us. Another time I got to see Leonard Skinner and Credence Clearwater Revisited with friends, and all of these were for free, by the way. Memories like these are one of many reasons why you'll find Arnie's name on an honorary street sign in Chicago. A legacy that spans so many businesses and decades, but it's all tied together by his magic touch with people. When Paramount Pictures released Grease in 1978, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, they threw a two-day party with plenty of live music to kick off the movie in Chicago. One of those musicians, then 22-year-old Joe Cantafio, played both days and vividly remembers walking into the venue for the second day, one of Arnie's restaurants. We walk into to Morton's, and this older gentleman comes up, and he goes, Hey, you're the lead singer at Jade 50. And I was like, Yeah. He goes, I was there last night. He says, You're great. He sat and talked with us for about... 20 minutes at this table. And so I, I finally asked him, and it was just so kind and open. And I finally asked him, you know, are you with Paramount Pictures? And he goes, no, I'm, I'm here with the restaurant. I said, oh, are you the manager? And he goes, I'm Arnie. I was blown away. I was like, this is the famous Arnie Morton that, you know, when, when you're a kid, you know, your parents would say, oh, we're going down to Morton Steakhouse. And here he was, a very, very humble guy. But perhaps... 
His clearest legacy of them all are his seven children, all of which chose to follow him. They all wound up in creative work, five of them directly in the restaurant business. Peter Morton founded the Hard Rock Cafe chain, and Pam, Michael, David, and Amy are all running top-tier restaurants across the country. Arnie used to joke that it puts a lot of pressure on the old man, I'm the failure of the family. In exploring some of food's greatest innovators, we would be failures if we started anywhere else. Arnie Morton, an American classic. And that was just a superb report. And it's so interesting to dig into the lives of these names, these iconic names that we know but don't at all. You know, we spent an hour on the man behind McDonald's, Ray Kroc. And if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org. What a story that is. I mean, in addition to lowering the price of food, giving us a wonderful thing called a, you know, a dollar hamburger and great French fries, um, he made a whole bunch of people multimillionaires. We also did Truett Cathy. And this is the first time we're doing some of the fancier dining spots. We're going to do it all. Peter, what stunned me was the, the length of time the, the staff stayed with him. 20 and 30 years. How did he do that, Peter? What an achievement. Well, you know, there was so much personal, in, you know, the, the, Rocky was obviously in the first location in Chicago, and Arnie was seen around there all the time. So they felt all that personal involvement, that, that touch of his. And at the same time, I mean, it always comes down to, you know, the atmosphere and making money. So the place was hustle, bustle. It was a great atmosphere. There were a lot of great customers. It was busy every night. You weren't standing around bored. And these people were leaving, like Amy said earlier in the show, with a lot of money. And, you know, great – Arnie was established one of the first great training programs in the industry where um, I believe the woman's name was Rhonda, and she would go from Morton's to Morton's and do all the training. And so, you know, when you're trained right – and you have the crowds in the restaurant, and you're making money, you know, it's, that's utopia in the restaurant business. Yeah, but you know, in a business known for turnover, Peter, um, obviously these guys made money, but Arnie wanted them to keep the money. I mean, in a certain level, Arnie was happy that they were making a good living, I would assume. No question about it. Arnie was, was all the way through his blood a true entrepreneur, and he considered every waiter, every busboy an entrepreneur, and he, he, he loved that they were making money. He loved to see the counts were high and hear that everybody tipped out great. Yes, he was all about that. You know, if there's one thing, Peter, a takeaway for you, you know, you spent some time as a young man with him. What did he drill down into you that carried with you the rest of your life? Uh, what is that maybe one or two things that as a restaurateur, as a businessman, and frankly, just as a leader having to make tough calls every night and every day? What are those one or two things that really stuck with you over the years? I think the two things would, one, be the behind-the-scenes that the people that dined in all his restaurants never saw, that he was absolutely the most savvy, business-minded guy. He knew where every penny was all the time. You know, you pounded that P&L, and it was just every, every single line where there was an expense that could be improved or whatever he was on top of. He was the master of finance and of leases and all that. But at the same time, he was like 
a double personality. Then all of a sudden he's out on the floor and that tough money guy was greeting and shaking hands with every person and showing, you know, that aggressive hospitality is really what it's all about in the business, making people feel at home. Not a manager walking up to your table saying, is everything okay? But a guy that made you feel like you belong where you were. And that's an odd thing to both be tough and fiscally prudent and have great discipline and also have that passion of almost an artist and an entertainer. And it's all wrapped around in the in the same guy, Peter. One last thought, maybe 15 or 30 seconds on this. He's always driving that P&L, but yet he's not skimping on the quality of the beef, is he? Not at all. Never. The best steaks there were. Arnie's famous line was, there are no original ideas in the restaurant business. It's just who steals them and make them better. And he always made them better. It was always top quality. Well, Peter, this is a delight. And we look forward. Actually, I'm just dying for a good steak right now. And we're dying to look forward, dying to and looking forward to more talk from our Food Life series with Peter Yaffe. Our first, very first installment, No Better Man, The Life of Arnie Morton. Born in 1922, died on May 28th. 2005.